please let's uh, keep our Bibles opened. Acts chapter 15. And today we'll be taken all the way into the first century to have a peep. Just look into what is happening. But I'll pray before we do that, shall we? Let me pray. Our Father, we know we are always on holy grounds. When we gather in your presence, sing of you to one another and to you. And then we listen to your word proclaimed to us. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be transformed, that you will be glorified in our midst. We pray that this morning will be another time when we experience you as we listen to our Father speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now from reach out, what we just did, what um, Pastor Mayor just did for us, we are being encouraged, aren't we, to prayerfully seek opportunities to proclaim the gospel to people, to our neighbors, to the people that the Lord might bring our way. And I take, I take that seriously. I've been trying to put that into practice. So this week, I found myself in a conversation with a woman, a dear woman that I met randomly, and we had a conversation. The conversation was directly, it started with a con, <laughs> maze. And we ended up talking about how can a person enter into the kingdom of God? How do you get into the new creation that is here, but not perfectly, will be perfected later? How do you become a child of God was what we we're talking about. And she made it clear to me in these terms. She said, You've got to believe in the death of Jesus Christ, but in addition, in addition, you've got to ensure that you are clean in your hearts and you are living a pure life before you can enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, you've got to believe in Jesus and you've got to also trust and ensure that your heart is pure. Jesus plus a pure heart and a pure life will give you access into the kingdom of God. So we had a very good conversation regarding this. Now, keep that question in mind. How do you actually enter into the kingdom of God? How are you saved? How are you forgiven? How do you become a child of God? How do you become part of the people of God? So keep this conversation with this woman in mind. She says, the death of Jesus plus a pure heart and a pure conduct, these will give you access into the kingdom of God. The good news is that this conversation between the two of us was not unique to us. In the first century, a conversation like that, a big one, had taken place in Acts 15. The word of the Lord is spreading. It began in Jerusalem. The gospel was preached by Peter. Thousands of people came. Jews are coming in. But something strange is happening. Gentiles, non-Jews, pagans are also somehow beginning to flock to the Lord. Now, we've got to think through, for all my life as a Jew, 
I have tried to keep the law of Moses and circumcision and so on and so forth. Is it fair to say that these ones will only come in and they just come in? How does a person actually become a member of God's family? Now, let me try to re-emphasize that this conversation taking place, this debate taking place in Acts 15 is so important. Depending on where it went, it was going to have implications for the church 2,000 years on and beyond. It was going to have implications for us. Let me show you how important it was. So important that the church in Antioch had to send Paul, Barnabas, and a few others to go all the way down to Jerusalem. And so important that the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem had to gather together in welcoming them to talk about this. And it was a debate. It had been a debate in Antioch, in Syria. They had debated it to the point that they had to send people, go to Jerusalem and have these things clarified. And then when they got to Jerusalem too, it wasn't easy. There was a big debate. And look at something really interesting. When you read the earlier, uh, early verses, the, in this meeting were gathered what you might call the giant apostolic fathers, if you like. These are the giants. Peter was there. James, the brother of Jesus, our Lord, and if you like, the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem is there. Paul is there. Barnabas is there. The elders of the church in Jerusalem. And then representation from Antioch. They are there. This is a momentous moment. This is a big deal. What is going to be discussed? I know that sometimes some Christians like together. Uh, to get together to have a debate about all kinds of spiritual issues, all kinds of things that have no relevance whatsoever, not only to the church but to the world or even to themselves. And they are the only ones who get excited about it. Nobody else could care less. This is not one of those. It is not one of such debates. So what is the problem? What is the problem? Why is this so important? The problem is in verse 1. Of chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is really not, at this point, about how you live as a Christian, even though it has a, an implication, a huge one for that. Here is how are you saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, according to the law, you cannot be saved. And then they repeat it in verse 5, when the guys get to Jerusalem. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. That is the only way they can be saved. Now, you know that, don't you? Now, when we are preaching the gospel to non-Christians, we know are really, really bad in terms of their behavior. Usually, we say, yeah, we're preaching Jesus to you, but you have to stop drinking in order to be saved. 
So a bit of that is going on here. It has to be this and that, and then you will be saved. Circumcision and obedience to the law was necessary, necessary for your salvation. Without it, you cannot become a child of God, they are saying. So what is at stake here? The reason this is a big deal, this is important, is that the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ itself is at stake. If this conversation goes well, 2,000 years on, we will be safe. If it doesn't, something terrible would happen. So how does a person, how can a person become a child of God, a follower of Jesus? On the basis of what will God accept any person as his own and give them himself and give them eternal life? The answer is this, and we will see it in a minute, but let me state it. A person is saved only and only through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is God's work. You can only become a child of God, a follower of Jesus, a member of the kingdom of God, a member of God's family, forgiven, saved, rescued from the wrath of God to come because of our sin. You can only be saved by faith. Trusting, throwing yourself onto Jesus completely. And that is God's work. That is how God works. That is how he has designed it. So let me take you back for a second. Chapter 14, verse 27. Before we went into this whole debate. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. And what had God done? And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were coming in through the door of faith in Jesus. God was bringing non-Jews, non-Jewish people to himself through opening their hearts. And they trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for them. How can these non-Jews become the children of God? Let me tell you a story. It reminded me of a story about myself before I became a Christian. I had met a woman. She soon passed on. And she taught me that to become a Christian, to become a child of God, Jesus, yes. But also, there has to be a competition between your good works and your bad ones. And always, you have got to keep your eyes fixed on the scale. And ask yourself, where is my life tilting? Am I doing well in my good deeds or am I doing, well, am I doing worse in my bad deeds? Whichever way the scale goes, then you know that heaven is or is not for you. And that terrified me because unfortunately, I would try hard. For those of you who know Kaneshi, Kaneshi, the, the footbridge, as for you, you, you Manprobi, right? So we know. We know. He was Manprobi, I was Bubuashi. Kaneshi is the meeting point. And I will walk across the bridge after I had stolen money from my mom and some people and ensure that I'm giving some to those who were begging for money. I can almost see myself. Because somehow, if I'm able to do three, then it will cancel the one sin. It was burdensome. When was it enough before God? All the beggars praised me. Good boy. 
But how about God before him? Will that earn me any entry into heaven? Will God look at me and say, I know you stole, and yet you have done these good things. I can count the number of them. And therefore, on the basis of these things, plus also you recognize Jesus, now I bid you come in. It was burdensome. So, let's keep the question there to you. How do you become a child of God? How do you become a Christian? How do you enter into the kingdom of God? The way we're going to answer it is to listen to the people who were debating. So first we'll listen to Peter, and then we'll listen to Paul and Barnabas. We'll listen to James, and then we'll listen to the whole council, and then we are hopefully done. So Peter, number one. Peter is saying, the apostle Peter, who was there, he says, we Jews have the law, and I've realized, we know that, don't we, brothers and sisters, that a person cannot enter the kingdom of God, cannot be saved through obedience of God's law. You can't be saved by trying to be a good person because of what God requires, this absolute perfection in obeying his law all the time and at every place. We know our sinful nature doesn't permit us. And God calls his people. We know that he was telling the guarded people. That it is only by throwing ourselves on Jesus, by faith in him, by faith in his life, death, and resurrection, as on our behalf, it is only that, that we are saved. And then he goes through his arguments. Now, verse 7. He says that, you know that in Acts chapter 10, God made a choice by my mouth. When I spoke the gospel to Gentiles in Cornelius' home, and then they believed. They believed the good news that I preached about Jesus. You are all witnesses of that. When I came to report, when you rebuked me for going into the home of a Gentile. Look at verse 8. He says that God showed that this is the way he has set by giving to the Gentiles the Holy Spirit. The way God will confirm that Faith in Jesus alone is the way you can enter my family. Is that he pours out his spirits. He poured out his spirit on the Jews because they had believed the gospel. And now he says, you remember, he poured out the Holy Spirit in Cornelius' home. He has affirmed them without even they obeying the law of Moses. He had affirmed them because they have turned to Christ by faith. Hallelujah. And Peter again continues, verse 9. Let's just follow his argument. He says, God's, God makes no distinction. Whether you are Jew or non-Jew, whether you are from North America or Southern Africa or West Africa, everyone becomes and will become a child of God in the same way. What is that way? By faith, trusting, confidence, 100%. In what Jesus has done. There is no other way. There can't be any other way. Our hearts are cleansed when we hear the good news and we respond in faith. Not only for entry to become a Christian. That is how you live the Christian life. Faith in Jesus. Looking to him every day. Looking to him every day. Peter says. And then he continues in verse 10. Apart from the gospel, we are only putting a yoke. You know a yoke? When a cow is plowing, 
particularly in the north of Ghana, that thing there, that wooden thing that plows, is the yoke. Apart from Jesus, we are putting a yoke that we and our fathers could not bear. We're putting it on the Gentiles, that they should bear it. They have to do things in order to be accepted by God. When we tried it and failed and turned to Christ by faith, now we are saying, no, no, you, you should also try it when we know it wouldn't end anywhere. A yoke that will break their neck. And so you remember in Jesus' one of his calls, the Lord Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 to 30. We don't have to read it. Let me paraphrase this. He says this. Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon yourself. You see, he uses the same language. Take my yoke upon yourself. Stop seeking to win God's favor through your own work. That is a yoke that will break you. Run and throw yourself on me, Jesus, and then take my yoke upon yourself. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, and you will have rest for your soul. Trusting in him, clinging on to him, looking to him, and he transforming me. Verse 11. We know that, as I have said already, Peter says, a person cannot be justified, put right with God by his own efforts. Even if you do so well and human beings applaud you because you have done so well in comparison to others, not before God, not before this holy God. So that was Peter. He makes his points. And then the way was clear because there was some silence. I mean, everybody is hushed now. And then Paul and Barnabas. We don't know exactly what they said, but verse 12. They explain how God was confirming his acceptance of the Gentiles by causing signs and wonders to take place. Now, usually when we read things like this, signs and wonders, we all love signs and wonders, don't we? May signs and wonders occur amongst us. But here, there was... A completely big deal. Signs and wonders was not just for Peter. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were not just saying this to show how great they were and how, you know, people were bringing big offerings as a result of that and so on. The signs and the wonders they bring up in this debate because it was a confirmation of God's endorsement of what was happening. God was indicating by pouring out his grace in that way and his power in that way that this is it. Pointing to my son, the Lord Jesus, and calling people to respond to what he has done. To respond to him. And then he confirms that. And that was important for the Jews to hear. And after they had said that, James, I love James. Not because he is the Lord's brother. James, the apostle, he had listened to all the debate. I don't know where he was sitting. I can only picture Maybe a slightly older guy, and then he says this, verse 14. Well, my friends and brothers and sisters, it is quite clear, isn't it, that God through faith in Jesus is restoring 
Not only Israel to himself. The restoration of Israel is dragging along with it. It includes the restoration of the Gentiles, the people who are non-Jews, who will turn by faith, by trusting in Jesus. And then something, we didn't read that, but something that Amos, uh, James does. He takes the gathered people through a Bible study in the book of Amos. So you see that he does this quotation. We don't know how he explains that, but he explains that to show that God had promised in the days of old, at least we see it in Amos, that he was going to bring in and restore Israel, and the result will be the restoration of the Gentiles as well, and it will all be by faith in what God has done and what God has promised. So he takes them through this, and then he says this, you can sense a bit of his authority here, having listened to everybody. He says, here is my judgment on the matter, after we have all studied the scriptures together. My judgment is this. Do not, please, brothers and sisters, do not trouble the faith of the Gentile brothers and sisters by seeking to distract their 100% attention on Jesus 100%. Don't distract them. Let's not do it. It is not 99% of confidence in Jesus and what he has done and 1% tapping my shoulder in my own efforts, my ability to fast and pray, and even though I'm in 100% support of going out to evangelize, that I'm able to do that. And somehow I feel within my spirit that God must be more pleased with me. He loves me better because I'm doing these things. Do them. But that is not the reason. That is not the goal. And so James says that don't trouble them. Do not trouble them. And then he says something that is a little bit confusing on first reading. But let the Gentile Christians understand this. Look at verse 20. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What on earth is going on? What is he talking about? Is James saying that, oh, not circumcision and all the other things about the do's and don'ts of the law of Moses. They should trust in Jesus and add to it abstaining from sexual immorality, Food offered to idols, eating animals that were strangled and not slaughtered properly, and eating blood. If they add this to the Lord Jesus, then they will be saved. As for these ones, my brothers and sisters, if you listen to all the arguments so far, that is not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. I believe it's this. He's saying that, let the Gentiles know Just as we have known as Jews, a person is saved. You will become a child only by turning completely and putting your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and submitting to him. You are put right with God by faith in him. However, when you are put right by God with him, that changes you. It changes you. Rather than giving you 
let me call it the liberty, as people have argued, to go on and do whatever you like. The power of the gospel that brings you to God transforms you. It begins to reorient you. Your desires shift. Your love is reoriented to, towards God. Your obedience, however imperfect it will be, begins to redirect itself towards the word of God. So he says that by giving this instruction, let the followers of Jesus know and be confident in the fact that they are put right with God through, not through their hard work or obedience of the law. It is only when a person completely, and I've made that point, trusts in Jesus. But then he adds this. But James says, they should be helped, the Gentiles, to realize that the free grace of God in Jesus that put them right with God also changes you and makes you a distinct people. I know I'm not explaining it well. But please. Gentiles, you live in a world where people are practicing all the other things. But do not live as the Gentiles do. Because this gospel that you have believed, the gospel of grace that has brought you into God, that same gospel begins to transform you. And so the very things that are public and are known to be sinful within this culture and within this place, turn from it. Be seen as a people of God. Because God has made you his people, be a people of God by his grace. And then there is the other dimension of that same thing. You realize he's talking about animals that have been strangled and blood. This is something that Jews wouldn't go near, even Jewish Christians. And so he says that the gospel of grace that brings you in makes you gracious. It makes you begin to relate in community with grace. You begin to love the Jews by avoiding these things. And that is a testimony to the world of the power of the gospel that changes us, that brings us into God's family. And within God's family, this is what happens. We are saved by the loving Heavenly Father through Christ, and He makes us loving. And so the Gentiles begin to take into consideration the Jews, the extinct people who are relating with each other so distinctly. Now, quickly. You realize that eating together was a big deal in the first century church. You remember in Galatians when Paul, um, uh, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. That means acceptance. That means fellowship. That means oneness. And they had just cooked their food, you know, taking these things into consideration. And then he saw that there were some of these Jew, uh, Christians with background as far as he's coming in. And then Peter washes his hands and stays away from them. And Paul sees that and he says, no, you are being a hypocrite, dear brother. Because you are painting the same argument that we had dealt with. As if that they have to somehow purify themselves in order to be fully accepted. So until they do that, you want to show the other brothers and sisters that the, the Gentiles are not fully in yet. Food was a big deal. And so over here, they are being told, the Gentiles, that because of this same gospel, we avoid these things 
animals strangled, blood, and so on and so forth, so that before the world they see the gospel at work, Jews and Gentiles united under God. And so, the apostles, the elders, and the whole church now concludes, after everything has been said and done, enough debate. This was hot. No wonder going through it, I am sweating. And so the apostles, the elders, and the whole council that met said this, verse 24. Let us write to them and tell them, tell, tell everybody, especially those of us who move from Jerusalem, Judea, to these places. Tell them not to unsettle, not to shift the confidence of the believers from what Jesus has done for them. Keep looking to Jesus. Don't let anyone trouble your faith. As though you can contribute to your salvation. You can't. You don't. It is received by faith in Jesus. So they said that, look, the way they start the letter, they mention all these things. The whole church, every one of us, including even those of the Pharisaic background, we have searched the scriptures in Amos and maybe elsewhere. We have come to this conclusion. And verse 28 is absolutely beautiful. Do you have your Bible? I wish you could look at it. Verse 28. This is what the Spirit says. It has pleased the Holy Spirit and it has pleased us. It has to be in that order. They set the scriptures together in community and came to this conclusion because the Spirit revealed to them and confirmed to them that this is true. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus alone. And therefore, they said, it pleases us too. We will preach that and nothing else. So let it be known to you. And then they reaffirmed the same thing about why they should abstain from these things. Distinctive people, distinct, different people, loving people to one another, testimony to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me finish off in this way. My dear brothers and sisters, and if you are not a Christian yet here, thank God you still come to church. But if you're not trusting in Jesus fully, completely, completely throwing yourself, faith, your faith is, is the beggar's arm. My faith is the beggar's arm that I stretch to receive that which has fully been prepared by God. It is not my contribution to salvation. It is a beggar saying, help me. Apart from you, I can do nothing. So whether you're a believer or non-believer, listen to this. Salvation is not something that you can achieve. Salvation is something, a gift you receive from God. And you receive it by faith in Jesus. And that gift doesn't burden you. It frees you up. It frees you up to live for God. As we see in the blood things and the sexual immorality matters that he talked about, the gospel takes away that burden. The burden to prove yourself, prove yourself, not only to God, but prove yourself to people. The, burden, the, the gospel takes that. I am loved by God, accepted by him, only on the basis of Jesus. Why should I prove anything to anyone? If God doesn't require me to prove myself before he grants me entry, the gospel takes away my past burden 
my past burden, my present burden to show something of myself. And it takes away the future burden, the burden of the thoughts. Can I actually remain faithful to the end? The answer is yes, cling to Jesus. And the future is sure. We need the Savior every day. It's 10 minutes to 11, so everybody is looking at their watch, or some people. So let, let, me, let me go this way, and then we will uh, we'll pray. The issue that was like the picture, the heart of the thing, was circumcision. And you know that, well, okay, let me not go there. I was going to say something that will land me in trouble. So let me stay with the text. Circumcision means cut off, isn't it? You cut something off, and then there is blood. For the covenant, that is what God had set in the Old Testament. And so when you cut and there is blood, what you are saying is, <laughs> may this cut off thing and this blood that comes out happen to me if I break this covenant. That's basically what we are saying. So the circumcision was that sign. There is a covenant between God and his people, done by God, and so on and so forth. You are circumcised to remind you that if I break this covenant, I'm cut off and there is blood. That circumcision has been fulfilled in Jesus. The Lord Jesus, who was cut off from God as a result of our sin, my father, my father, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I cut off? He was cut off. Now we are made clean as a result of that circumcision because Jesus was cut off on my, on my behalf. I was supposed to be cut off because I break the covenants with God. Gospel freedom is knowing that what God requires of us to know him, to be reconciled to him, and to be forgiven and to be declared righteous before him has been done by Jesus. By faith in Jesus, we walk in this freedom and we live for him. And so, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that we, we are the circumcised by faith in Jesus. He was cut off so that we will be brought in, in him, on his resurrection, new life new lifestyle. Thank you, Lord. Help us to cling to Jesus 100% all the time. We know that, Lord, we are prone to drifting. We are prone to looking to ourselves. We are prone to wanting to show something of our quality. Help us to see the quality of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, and throw ourselves completely on him and ask him for help to change us by the power of the gospel. In his name we pray. Amen.